Welcome back to another episode of Tech Talk. Today, we're going to be talking about music copyright licensing, COVID's one-year anniversary, and job hunting. So, Alyssa, copyright music, what's your thoughts? Copyright protection of music has changed just exponentially within the digital age, and I think a predominant reason for that is because of the advent of music streaming platforms and platforms like SoundCloud, and additionally, an increase in the popularity of EDM music. So essentially, the problem is you have all these, you know, young teenagers that want to, they get a mixing board for Christmas, right? And they want to create their own tunes. They want to adapt others' copyrighted work and make it their own adapted version. And uh, the problem with this is that a lot of these young teens that don't have any knowledge on copyright implications think that it's entirely legal what they're doing by adapting original versions because they're not doing it for a profit. But the problem is that under the fair use doctrine, it's still illegal because they're receiving promotion, commercial promotion, regardless of whether that's they're profiting from it, they're still receiving publicity and promotion from it by using it and publishing it on a public platform. So as a result of that, it is illegal, but I think that the lack of knowledge right now allows so many of these cases to go, one, unknown, because it's hard to find when someone violates copyright, and two, people are just unaware that they're even violating the law by doing this. I don't mix music, but I do use SoundCloud, just like listen to remixes of cool songs, popular songs. I don't know too much about music copyright laws or any of the licensing about it, but to my understanding, it was always about artist discretion, where I guess not even for music, but more so for just imagery. If you had copyrighted or trademarked, which I'm still blurry on the two differences at times, but if you um, copyright or trademark, let's say a picture, I think one of those only applies to a picture, and someone else like alters it, but you can still very clearly tell that it's that character of sorts, then it's fine as long as you're not selling it. That was my understanding. So clearly, it it's a very common one, um, or at least I hope I'm in the very common understanding of it. Um, no, I think you are. I think that's the common misconception that most people hold. Yeah. So I, I think when it comes to music, it gets incredibly different because when we were discussing this ahead of time, it was like, sure, you can you can edit it a bit, but you can't distribute it, right? Is that how that works? The problem is you can't publish it. Like, just like a quick like, case that it, it seems ridiculous when you think about it, but there was a woman that got sued for posting a video on YouTube of her daughter's wedding because it included a copyrighted song in the background. And the her attorney like explained to her that it doesn't matter what your intentions are. It doesn't matter if you even credit the owner. You need the clearance of the owner if you're publishing it on any publicly available platform, YouTube, SoundCloud, and if there's any, like, adaptation, any just glimpse of that copyrighted work in it, it's still violating copyright. I know from, like, people who make YouTube videos, depending on what it is, I look up just video game walkthroughs sometimes because I'm bad at games, and they'll throw in copyrighted music accidentally because they took it from another source and they didn't even realize it was copyrighted and then when they post it onto youtube it does get taken down at times because youtube is able to like self-govern and look at 
what the music or audio is playing on their videos, which good for them. YouTube's a huge platform. They have so much technology behind it. Um, but it makes sense. I'm, it sucks that a lady couldn't share her daughter's wedding, but I understand the the automated algorithm that YouTube has to govern their videos. Yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't even taken down as a thing. It was just that she received a lawsuit from the owner of the copyright protection. And uh, that's another thing that I think is difficult. And it's somewhat a result of the federal legislation that's been passed too. So you have like um, the Protect IP Act, um, but and this other one called SOPA, so the abbreviation. But under both of them, it's ultimately uh, it's the responsibility of the copyright holder to, to detect copyright violations. So a lot of the times, these platforms like YouTube and SoundCloud, they're not going to do the work <laughs> for the copyright owners. I mean, when you think about SoundCloud, just the billions of different adaptations of electronic music, SoundCloud is not going to do the work to find copyright violations. So ultimately, it comes down to the individual owner of that legal protection to seek out when it's violated, which is close to impossible when you think about the number of adaptations that have been distributed with the rise of electronic music. So many people mix music into making it an electronic type genre or sound or tune. Um, I'm very familiar with music lingo, clearly. You can listen to pretty much, let's say, just the standard song that comes out, and then people will remix it so that it's upbeat, or other people like having their own verse, chorus, to just people who listen to it. They think it's cool. Very simple. But there's way more legalities that go into it than just, yeah, you can edit and distribute it. That's completely unlike just visual mediums of video and pictures where you're allowed to do that and then i think it's distribution of it or recording of it that is not okay because when i first was looking into it i was like does this mean djs their entire job is illegal but no like if they're not recording it or distributing it like that they can alter the music however they want um of just other people and then play it but Oftentimes, when it's like, when I mean DJs, I mean like EDM DJs. It's weird because DJs are like musicians who make music, but they also, their whole concert experience is then altering music and making sounds that get people excited. And I think another point of confusion is that it doesn't have to be an exact replica of the original sound. It's anything that resembles that original sound or has the same melody. And granted, I'm not an expert on um, reading music, but it's interesting to see, I think, the intersection of like cultural values when it comes to these lawsuits taking place as well. Uh, just something that comes to mind for me is Tom Petty. He's had a lot of these copyright cases. And uh, one of the initial ones that uh, happened in the 2000s, I believe it was in about like 2006, 2005, but the Strokes, who <clears throat> are kind of an alternative rock band, they stole a rift in one of their songs called Last Night from Tom Petty's extremely famous song, American Girl. And uh, when Tom Petty approached them, like, hey, buddies, like, <laughs> you took this from my song, like, this melody, 
they they didn't even deny it. They were like, you know what? Yeah, we did. We love your music. And uh, Tom Petty didn't end up even filing a copyright lawsuit against them. And I think part of that is because of this unison between their cultural values, the strokes. I mean, they're a new age rock band, but a lot of their sounds come from um, the Heartland rock that Tom Petty was a part of. And then later on, a few years later, um, Sam Smith had a hit song that I'm sure we all know, Stay With Me. And Tom Petty ended up filing a copyright lawsuit against that for um, taking from his song, I Won't Back Down. And that ended up being a multi-million dollar lawsuit. Um, And Tom Petty going through with filing that and getting royalties off that in the end. And I think a large part of that, why he took action against Sam Smith as opposed to um, the Stones, not the Stones, sorry, the Strokes, was because uh, when the Sam Smith case happened, when Petty contacted the legal representatives of Sam Smith, they were entirely ignorant to like Tom Petty's music, to Heartland Rock, to that whole genre of music. And I think that there was this cultural divide that almost spurred um, more action within the lawsuit. So it's interesting too, to see kind of how culture influences those copyright violations as well. I imagine one of the worst things to do when you're getting sued is not to just immediately say, oh, yeah, who the heck are you? Like, maybe they just genuinely didn't know. If that's the case, then I would take it more of a uh, nicer path, I guess. Or just say, I'm so sorry, I didn't know. Like, just admit fault immediately or pay attention to it more. I don't know how how much music can get copyrighted and how do you get a finite number of riffs, I guess, or just musical notes? Because how how finite is sounds at times? At some point, we'll reach an end, or at least I think we would. So how, how do you protect against that? How do you get to the point where nothing is available? Or how do you get, how do you avoid that? Because sometimes there's people who just don't know. I don't know about the Sam Smith case where it was definitively like with ill intent, but I I guess ill intent is like a a more negative thing. But purposely doing it is is wrong. But if you were to do it by accident, I'm sure it's just a simple misunderstanding. Yeah, I mean, I think there's differing laws on it. From what I understand, for music that was written on or after January 1st of 1978, there was a new um, copyright protection law that went into place. And uh, the basic term, I believe, protection of the life is the writer's entire life plus 70 years. So I guess based on that, the life plus 70 years rule that you would be able to repeat riffs and melodies eventually. So there would be this ability to repeat the cycle after that 70 years plus life period. But then again, that is a long time. 70 years is a really long time. That's also after somebody's death. That's just a long time. And you'll have an endless cycle or a very small cycle of music, I guess. But... You know it's not 70 years old? 
Feels like it, though. <laughs> it does feel like uh, COVID is 70 years old. But it's going to be about a year in the U.S. I guess it's a year. My my number that I always say is March 14th, because that was or March 13th, because it was Friday the 13th when everything was was shut down. That was like the ultimate Friday the 13th of boom. That that was a real scary day, I guess. People weren't ha- too uh, happy with that. <laughs> but I don't know. We've we've been a year in the U.S. of COVID. We've done a lot of stuff in terms of COVID. Had everyone celebrate a birthday in COVID. Johnson & Johnson got a vaccine released. There were, it's only a single dose now. That's pretty cool for them. Texas is just like, I've had enough. I think that some Texas residents are going to get a rude awakening, unfortunately, when they walk into uh, certain stores or shopping centers and they're still mandated to wear a mask. And they're going to be like, what are you talking about? The, the government of Texas said we don't have to anymore. But the reality is that private institutions can run under their own discretion. They can have, you know, mask policies where you have to wear a mask going into private stores. So at the end of the day, yes, it does a lot for residents of Texas, just in terms of setting the culture, I guess, that is persistent within that state of, hey, we don't need to wear a mask. But at the end of the day, it's going to be up to a lot of the private institutions in Texas as to whether they want to abide by that or not, because that's entirely in their discretion. Sure, the government is not enforcing that you wear masks. That does not mean you still can't choose to wear one. I'm torn on the idea of it. I like that if you want to, you can. If you don't want to, then you don't have to. But at the same time, uh, small uh, businesses, private businesses, they have the right to say, in order to enter, you got to wear a mask. They can do that too. I like that. I think it's very peer-to-peer. It depends on everyone's personal understanding. And then socially, or I guess socially, it depends on how many people you're hanging out with already. If it's you're sticking to the same group of people that you probably were during COVID, then you're probably going to have the same mentality to wear your mask or not wear your mask around them. I don't think it changes too much. I think it just means you're no longer... We'll see what it means. Because it's more so that the government's not enforcing it, the government of Texas. And so we'll see who's enforcing it and who doesn't. If people don't want to, then they don't. And if people do, then they still enforce it. This is now where it's in the people's hands to decide. Which I think is an interesting thing that we'll see play out in, let's say, a week. We'll just see the spike or no spike in the week. I think that something else that is like interesting that was a wake-up call to a lot of American citizens as well was just the power of states too. And that shows through Texas being able to remove all mandates. Like with the emergency declaration that went into place um, in March last year when COVID hit, you would think that an emergency declaration coming from the federal government to you know shut down would carry more weight but like at the end of the day the united states is a republic and the states have a hell of a lot more power than the federal government all the power that the federal government has is enumerated power so that's delegated by the states and i think that's just become even more apparent with just seeing how much mask laws and covid safety laws have varied so much by different states like in california 
nothing nothing's really open still honestly everything's outside seating bars aren't open clubs aren't open any most places are limited to 20 percent capacity with the mask mandate still and that's just standing in stark contrast to texas we forget a lot of times what an entity is government's just a group of people whether it be federal whether whether it be state it's just a group of people and now let's break it down all the way to just people in a city or a town or into a small business the rules that really apply to what we agree upon it's we've accepted laws and we take them into our hands and we follow them of course there's laws where we just absolutely don't falter on where hopefully we don't falter on murder um we can all agree that's bad but it comes down to yeah you're living in your own home let's see if other people living in your home with you you wearing masks with them are you, are you break it down to that are you wearing masks with them no and then sure they're not wearing masks with other people or you're not wearing masks with other people i think it's going to show a lot of the connections or the interactions between people it's a very philosophical concept i guess but i don't really have the full understanding of it myself i always just think every organization is just a group of people and whether it's the state of texas is just the residents of texas and there's so much more going on but they will decide how they want to govern themselves and that's good if even without government intervention people will still decide what they want to do they can choose to uphold it and or I guess choose to uphold the previous sentiment to wear masks, or they can choose not to. It's totally up to them. I'm very interested to see how this plays out because if this plays out positively, people do it or not, you'll see other states do it as well. I don't probably more red states, definitely more red states. But we'll see how it plays out for Texas and then the rest of the US. Yeah, I think it could go it could go one of two ways. Very poorly or very well. <laughs> I don't think there's really a middle ground. And I mean, you can see the backlash on Governor Abbott right now after he posted on Twitter as well just the death threats and saying, "Oh, you're responsible for every death that takes place like here on after." And there is so much backlash. And if this is if this is a failure in some respects, that is that's not going to be good. I think, especially for the polarization that currently exists within the U.S. politically. But if it does go well, I think that that'll be moving in a positive direction. And obviously, that's extremely optimistic, you know, to hope that it works well. But I think that if people are safe and individuals can take it into their own responsibility to be safe while you know the last of this virus is going away and while vaccines are being distributed it really would say something for like the american people as individuals coming together to resolve this year-long pandemic i think it's wrong to blame him for just deaths going forward it's wrong to blame politicians for everything it's Sure, your political belief really wants you to. Your political standing, where you are in this spectrum or continuum, really wants you to 
dislike another person just on their political beliefs. That's completely wrong, and it it adds to the polarization of politics in the U.S. There is way more that goes on to one person's actions to just sign off on something and say, we're doing this. That mean he was not responsible for all the deaths prior is one of my questions to think about. Sure, everyone's going to have their own opinion on it, and they'll spout nonsense. This is for both political parties, saying things about each other's uh, governors, politicians, leaders. I think none of them should really be held responsible outside of things that they directly do. Sure, they're responsible to an extent, but they can't really be held responsible to every regard. It just doesn't make sense because the people that they govern are their own people too. They have actions, and whatever they do directly impacts the people around them, not explicitly that the governor controls people. Sure, they set precedent, but you have your own ability to do whatever you want. I mean, I think that, you know, as we come to this one-year anniversary, <laughs> anniversary really has a positive connotation, not so much in this sense, but... um. As we come to this one-year anniversary of COVID, I think one thing that is going to have some long-term, long-lasting effects, which is really unfortunate, is the job market. And I know that for Hayden and I, that's that's affecting us a lot right now, too, because we're seniors in undergrad right now. And I'm just curious, Hayden, how is that process looking for you and the people around you? Excellent transition. Thank you. <laughs> Job searching is not fun. I feel like if anyone's experienced it, I hope everyone has it to some point in their life. Um, you know it's not fun, and you learn that pretty fast, because you'll, depending on what you're looking for, like, of course, we're finishing up school. We kind of want something more than just fast food or retail, unless you want to go into retail, that's totally fine. It's, you, you expect more from your job once you have a degree, you go to school, you spend four plus years of your life sitting in a classroom, listening to some people say stuff about what you should do. And like over $200,000 most often. <laughs> yeah. Some people get themselves into really bad debt, which that's a, a weird thing that happens. Some people, they do well and they work during school. Job searching, it's not fun. If you, you know it, you're going to hear no's. I've definitely heard no's. Like, literally finding my first job while I was in high school, I heard many no's. That's fine. I had an interview recently where I won't, like, name drop the company, but it was, like, a weird interview. It's, again, financial schemes. And I sat in this 30-person Zoom interview and listened to this one person pitch what we would be doing. And I was like, I see. It's, I, this is a scheme. This is, like advanced versions of multi-level marketing however the reason why i like showed up to the interview was because the email specifically said this is not commission-based this is not cold calling this is not such and such and i was like okay maybe they just have fallen under a bad rap under the rest of marketing companies in just everywhere uh no no they were a bad company um in the end of the pitch they tell you after six months of working there you get a little promotion and 
they encourage you to start your own business and they'll give you capital and for exchange for equity and they don't disclose how much equity because in the end they're just going to gut you for whatever you make or whatever you do with yourself and <laughs> over time people logged off i i became one of those people i i just wanted to hear them hear them out and see how ridiculous some people are and sure maybe i am ignorant to however the world works but i think if you follow under any sort of principles in your life, this is not something you should do. And they do end up getting people. And I feel really bad for the people that they trick to do this. That was one of like three interviews that I've had so far. And I've spent like two weeks searching. So good for me. But the job search doesn't end until a job is solidified. And that's a hard thing to do, especially right now, because it's people are afraid to meet and they do everything over zoom and it's completely different than three years ago where you'd go to the office of wherever you're trying to apply for and you apply you walk through the doors you shake people's hands you actually get to discuss a bit further than through a camera through a really small camera on your computer yeah i feel like one of the biggest parts of um the job search process is just getting comfortable with rejection and i don't think any any human honestly i don't think that we're naturally inclined to be good at dealing with rejection especially when you when you've worked your bum off for four years in college to earn a degree and you feel that you are competent and you feel that you could add value to the firms that you're applying to and your interview goes great your resume looks great and then you get you get the email we're so glad that you've gone through this process with us after your what four or five interviews with the company and but unfortunately it's been a competitive cycle and we regret to inform you that we're not extending an offer and it's going through this process i mean 10 to 20 times before getting that one yes honestly I mean, for the people that get 20 yeses, congratulations to you. But I think for a vast majority of us, it's getting that one yes after 20 attempts, you know. And uh, I think it does build resilience, though, going through this process, and especially during COVID, with just trying to deal with all the rejection that happens, especially because it is a hyper-competitive job market right now with fewer openings. And a lot of people that have, um, for me, like go, applying to law school, a lot of people that deferred a year because they didn't want to be in virtual school. So it's just a more competitive environment and you just have to, you know, power through and persevere through the rejections. And I think that individuals that can bounce back and use those rejections to motivate them to keep going through the job search process or applying to grad school, I think people that use it as motivation to keep going through the process are the ones that are going to end up in a good position at the end of the day even though it's it's so hard to do and i keep telling myself that i need to look at it with that mindset too which is just not easy but i think that's like the key to making it through at the end of the day one of the things that i remember from reading the book the startup of you by reed hoffman the founder of linkedin said back in the day job searching was like aim shoot aim shoot aim 
shoot. Now, job searching is more so aim, shoot, 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 and hope that you hit a target. It's like an automated weapon now. It's very accurate in terms of the metaphor, not how we're shooting for jobs. Not necessarily hitting the targets. Exactly. And it's become a, you just fire out resume. Hope, hope that you make a cover letter. I make a cover letter for just about every single job unless they specifically ask not to. But um, it's hard. It's absolutely changed given the fact that I don't know how, how job searching was 20 years ago. Where they didn't have the internet at scale as that we do now where there's job boards of web, just a collection of all the people posting jobs. Now it's it, that's the case as well as you're going to be lucky if you hear from such and such that you haven't talked to in two years that they have a job for you or something like that. It's become a, you you shoot everywhere. I'm going to be honest, when, when they give that option of why do you want to work here, I can't, if, if I'm trying to be honest to them, I would say I'm just looking for a job. And it depends on why you're looking for a job. Everyone has a different reason. Some people for money, some people because they they are very interested in in that field or in that position. And I hope you're happy with whatever job you end up getting. I Right now, I can't say that I'm looking for a job that I find happiness in. I'm more so looking for a job that fits a many range of things that seem interesting to me. I guess I'm the oddball out because I'm definitely going down the road of Maybe I'm delusionally optimistic, but I'm definitely going down the road of I want to I want to end up in my dream job, which I'll just let you guys know it's working in the Bureau of Competition. I really hope that I can look back in 30 years and actually be working in the Bureau of Competition. Um, it's part of the Federal Trade Commission, but I'm like so determined to end up getting into my dream career because I'm like passionate about what it does honestly but I realize that there's going to be quite a few years where I'm going to be struggling with the money side of everything especially going to law school for three years and you know taking out loans to do that but I'm playing the long game I guess that is also reminiscent of my strategy as an investor too big value investor (laughs) I hope everyone finds like a dream job for me, it's more so I'll find it along the way. I don't know what my dream job is until I've tested the waters. I'm just trying to look around and see what's interesting to me because I haven't found anything that seems like an interesting job to me. That's just me. And I have 22 years of experience. Um, of course, very finite or very limited to the grand scheme of life. And there'll be times where you're in an interview and you know the job isn't for you. You know exactly the job isn't for you. This is not the first time I've done this, which sounds bad. But I've had a job interview where it was in like financial services. And some of the stuff she was discussing with me was like, this, it seems interesting. It's what I like to do to a scale that is a little obscure to my understanding so far. And then when we left at the elevator to send me away, it was more so the cold shoulder walk away. And I was like, ah, 
I, I know exactly this is not what I want to do. And maybe I didn't give a good impression. And sure, that's on me. But the cold shoulder walk away, not even saying goodbye, was enough for me to be like, I'm good. I don't care. I don't get called back or get an email at all. And that was the case. I remember interviewing in uh, investment banking and going out to New York. This was last year. Um, But going out to New York and (laughs) sitting in an interview with this like 65 year old uh, managing partner. (laughs) And he just looked at me dead in the eyes and he was like, so I want to, I want you to be real with me. He's like, how will someone from West Coast culture be able to succeed on the East Coast? I just don't understand the practicality of it. (laughs) I was just sitting there dumbfounded. I was like, just because I'm from the West Coast does not mean that I do not have a good work ethic, that I'm not ambitious. Like, excuse me, sir. (laughs) In terms of work ethic, I think that is the one factor that you have infinite potential to control. You can outwork everybody in the room, heck, everyone in the entire building. That can be your differentiating factor because without that, what, is, what do we got against each other? We got school, we got connections, education, training, previous job history. There's so much more that goes into it. And my logic is if you can work harder than everybody else, you can get anything done. I think work ethic is the strongest competitive edge as an employee or just anyone in the job hunt. I hope to use that as my advantage. I'm curious what your perspective is kind of on the pendulum of competitive pressure too, because I think that competitive pressure is rising to like an all-time high. And unfortunately, that's really um, (laughs) apparent through mental health, the trend in mental health, I think nowadays too. And Like Wall Street's gotten a big wake up call because there's been quite a few suicides by individuals in their 20s or literally there have been individuals that have died in the past five years from in the office from uh, being overworked. Um, And I'm sure there's possible like drug usage too, using stimulants to stay awake the whole night. But the, the competitive pressure that grossly apparent for, I think, Gen Z, and especially in this current job market with COVID, it's at an all-time high, and that's really bleeding over, I think, into the mental health aspect, too, because I know that I've gotten caught in this trap a lot where I'm like, I need to stay up till four in the morning. I need to, like, limit myself to two hours of sleep. I need to go above and beyond to make sure that I'm, you know, the best that I am in what I'm doing. And uh, there comes like a point of burnout. And if you're burning out in your young 20s, it's like, how are you going to have a fruitful career after that? And when does this pendulum sort of swing back? You know, schools, the acceptance rates are going lower and lower and lower. And it's like they can't be zero. But then again, how is anyone supposed to feel like they can succeed when acceptance rates, whether that's for getting into a job or getting into a university or grad school, how, how is anyone supposed to feel that they can compete with a 1% acceptance rate into that climate? I like these heavy questions. I think work ethic in terms of you already have the job and now you're just working to maintain it. It makes sense. Like I absolutely know the, the pressure's on and I kind of enjoy it. I enjoy a bit of the challenge. I enjoy 
working more sounds really bad, but I would say if it works for you, if it works for anyone, then you can do it. But know your limits. I think knowing your limits is is the bottom line of, okay, this is too much. Take a breather. I've definitely spent times where I've never stayed up all night. I have, I think the latest I'll ever stay up to work on something is two. I, I can't really. I've definitely had nights where I have, <laughs> I've had seven two hour periods where I basically have not slept more than an hour, unfortunately. <laughs> it's just part of it. But I had to learn quickly, like that I can't function at a high level when I don't sleep more than an hour in 48 hours or 72 hours that I can't function highly. So, I mean, yeah, I think that it, it's unfortunate that for me, at least it was a lot of trial and error of just like pushing myself beyond my limits and getting sick and never sleeping and realizing, okay, I can't even provide like my best work, whether it's in an academic setting or in like an internship setting, I couldn't provide my best work when I literally was running on zero sleep after three days. Like I I need like five hours of sleep somewhere in there. (laughs) Absolutely. It's the law of diminishing returns. Once you're like 72 hours in, how much work can you get done at that point? For me, when I, I call it at two, because I have the next day, I take a breather. That makes sense to me. Um, there will also be times where I procrastinate to do stuff, but I make sure I get it done before the deadline. There's never been a time where I let it go overboard. And I think if you can be proactive enough to set yourself up in a good position to do that, then that's great. In terms of pressure on everybody on, on employees or on whoever it is, as an individual, you need to know your own limits when, when you're done and there should be less pressure metaphorically and literally people kill themselves over working to obtain the level that they they have maintaining these fancy positions on wall street or whatever other job that they're at where you're considered the utmost quality individual or quality level of work yeah i'm not gonna name drop the company obviously but i was in an interview um last year and uh, it was a senior associate in a banking firm and they they had like cocaine on their nose when they were interviewing me and they kept rubbing it during the interview too. And I was like, man, when I am 35, like in my mid 30s, this is not how I want to end up where I'm relying on substances that are basically killing my body in order to perform at a high level. That is stereotypical, like, Wolf of Wall Street right there. I know. I hate to, like, give in to the stereotypes, but, I'm, like, this stereotype, there there really is, like, some truth to it. And, I've, I mean, I've witnessed it. I'm just hoping that the pendulum starts swinging in the other direction just a little bit where, you know, there is more emphasis on mental health in some regards that... You know, and it's important for employers, too, because I think that you get the best work out of people when they're happy and when they love what they're doing and they love the company that they're working for, too. And, like, I am optimistic it will start going in that direction because I think 
the pendulum has to swing back, just the law of physics in some ways, and you can't go to 0% acceptance rates at the end of the day. And I think it will go back to that middle ground eventually. I'm not sure how quickly that will occur, but I think there will be more of a focus on mental health and just that's really the route to get the most out of individuals, I think, is when they feel healthy, honestly, as well as passionate about what they're doing. I hope so, too. And I know our metaphor we used for it was a pendulum, and I hope it is a pendulum. But if the metaphor is not a pendulum, then that's no bueno. We can conclude here. I hope this has been like a, a good conversation. I thought it was actually pretty good. I think it's just it hits really close to home for both of us right now, too. Whether it be financial services or whatever you do, there's going to be times where there is pressure at work. And I think that's healthy at times. But the level of pressure that you get to on financial services is rough. I agree. I love competitive environments and fast-paced environments. And I honestly thrive in high-stress situations. But there's a physical limit that the human body can tolerate at the end of the day. Absolutely. I would say I like a bit of a challenge. But just constant competition, it's bad for you. It's comparing too much. I hope that's a good takeaway. With that? With that, we're going to end it here. Until next time, have a good one.